0: I ain't talking about precipitation. I'm talking Father God. He gave Jesus the nations. And he's ruling now. Even over babies One day he's coming back. You just gotta have patience. All King Jesus. All King Jesus. All King Jesus. All King Jesus
1: Alright, All 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 hey, what's up,
2: guys? Welcome to that Post Mill Podcast, where we don't need evidence to know that Psy Ten Brew, and kate is on the cast today. We just presuppose it and know it. We got yeah. Cy on the cast. Woo! That post mail. Mm-hmm.
3: That post mail. All
2: right. So we've been uh, focusing on the last, the last few uh, episodes, and next, you know, the next few that we're gonna do too. We want to focus on some of the core tenets of Reconstructionism, and today we're gonna talk about presuppositional apologetics. And we are we're honored to have Cy on uh, on the cast. I'm sure most of you know who he is, and you've probably heard him speak. And uh, yeah, we're excited to see what uh what he has to say today and uh let's yeah, let's get into it. Sai, welcome to the that Postal podcast.
4: Well, thanks a lot for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Looking forward to talking with you. I've met uh, Colin in person. I've not met the re- well. Actually, I've met uh, Adam too. I stayed at his house. Sai, I'm, uh... I'm
3: heartbroken. <laughs> I'm, I'm heartbroken. No, si. I mean, you
4: were late, so I mean that's why I forgot. <laughs> sigh we met at the James White
3: debate. Oh, uh, John, that, debate.
4: that's right. John, and I've met. So I've met three of the four. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's start over. <laughs> well, the thing is. <laughs> The thing is, none of the, none of the cameras are on, so that's
2: why... Um, so the question is, what do we have to do to get you to come up to Minnesota to to see me? Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. Minnesota.
4: Yeah, that's quite the accent. I have family in Manitoba, and they tend to have the same accent. They talk about snow.
3: I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have Minnesota. an accent. <laughs> Dustin, you're, you know that to sigh, you're just a southerner. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> I, I live in Texas, right? Well, I hope to be in Winnipeg on the 16th to the 18th, but... Um, and then I head to uh, Calgary after that for a conference. So I'll be in your neck of the woods anyways. Getting closer. Cool. Well, um,
2: why don't we just start off with, uh, can you just explain to us what is presuppositional
4: apologetics? First, can you spell sure. presuppositional? <laughs> <words from laughs> I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> not me neither. <laughs> it's too bad that, that they made, uh, you know, that they use such big words, because a lot of times people discard the uh, theology or the position because... Uh, because of the big words involved. Yeah. So um, I'm just glad they didn't call loving your neighbor phylogenetics, or people say, I don't have to do that either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But um, presuppositional presuppositional apologetics, I started, um, like I was born and raised in a Christian home, don't know when I was saved. I don't say that I was born saved like a lot of people want to accuse me of, but I don't know when I was saved. But I always had a passion for defending my faith. But what I discovered is most of my life I was doing it wrong. When somebody said that they didn't believe in God, first of all, I believed them. And then I would try to give them evidence to try and convince them that God exists. I was actually starting my website, and it was very similar to the website that I have now, uh, ProofThatGodExist.org, but it was uh, evidential. It was a point-and-click thing that you could try and get you know to the rational conclusion that God exists. And my Christian brothers and sisters loved it. I mean, I wasn't posted yet, but I would share some of the arguments, and they said, "Sai, you got to get this out here. you got to get this out there. And um, then I started sharing these arguments with some of my unbelieving friends, and I got them shoved down my throat. And at the time, I didn't know why. You know, one reason is because they're terrible arguments. A lot of them, they're not logical. And another reason is because they're not actually talking about the God of the Bible, as I understand him. So this is, um, the best way probably to describe presuppositional apologetics is to tell what it's not. See, because if somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God, what's the first thing that we tend to do? We believe them, first of all, and then we give them evidence. And I say, well, where do you hear evidence most often in the secular world? You hear evidence in the court of law. Who do you give evidence to in the court of law? You give evidence to the judge and the jury. So, an unbeliever comes up to you and says, "Um, I don't believe in God, and you give them evidence, who are you saying is the judge and jury? Them. And who's on trial? The Lord of glory. So, we elevate the unbeliever to the position of judge and we put God on trial. And see, I don't do that because we all have the same evidence. So the best way, I think, to describe presuppositional apologetics is imagine that you take a fossil and you put it between a believer and an unbeliever. The believer might look at that fossil and say, oh, Noah's flood, you know, so many thousands of years. And the unbeliever looks at that same fossil and walks away saying, oh, millions of years or billions of years. Now it's the same evidence. Why do we come to different conclusions with the exact same evidence? The reason that we come to different conclusions with the same evidence is because of the beliefs that we take to the evidence our foundational underlying beliefs, our presuppositions. So I don't examine the evidence. I mean, there is a place for evidence in apologetics, I I think, as long as it's not used in the way that puts God on trial. But what I do is I I examine the presuppositions. And I say that unless you start with Christian presuppositions, you can't even make sense of examining evidence. Because uh, Romans uh, 11.36 says, From him, through him, and to him are all things. Now, all things necessarily includes our ability to reason. So I'm not going to give that to the unbeliever in order to examine evidence. I'm not going to give the tools of Jesus Christ to the unbeliever in order to examine uh, examine evidence. So this is the analogy I give. I say, imagine that uh, you were going to have a war with another nation, and you had all of the ammunition. I say, when does that war start? That war starts when you give the enemy, the the opposition, some ammunition. I say, I'm not going to do that. I can say from him, through him, and to him are all things. Unless you start with the God of the Bible, you can't make sense of what you're doing. And, you know, I think that I'm obviously people who know my work is that I'm hardcore with that. I'm not saying that there is no flexibility there, but I like to stick with my presupposition that the Bible is true. God exists and the Bible is true. And I say, according to Romans 1, everybody knows that. And I will not deviate from that. And um, a lot of people want me to but I simply won't do it because they will not abandon their presuppositions and I'm not going to do that with mine either. So,
5: Si, what I'm hearing is that your favorite movie is God's Not Dead. <laughs>
4: well, you know, <laughs> oh, I saw the, I heard you I saw the trailer. In that. I, didn't see it though. <laughs> I saw the trailer for that film and of course, I use the clip in my talks because the fellow says, you know, first of all, the, the professor challenges the student and, uh, you know, he says he's nonsensical for believing in God and the student stands up and he says, we're going to put God on trial, and I almost did a backflip. I thought, <laughs> not the God I believe in. No, you're not. You're not going to put him on trial. And so the very thing that I teach, this movie in their trailer comes up with the exact opposite teaching. Now I've talked to you know dear brothers and sisters, and they say, well, have you seen this in the movie? Did you see this in it? And I think that there probably are good parts, and I did see it, you know, probably years after, a year or so after it came out, and there were good part good parts in it. But you know, it's those things that kind of. Um, Turn me off to the good parts when I hear what they're actually what the whole premise of the movie is so yeah it's not my favorite film well that's well it
5: would would have been a herculean task you know for him to put god on trial you know so if if one god man is putting another god man on trial does that does that count so you know Kevin Sorbo was the was hercules
4: (laughs) oh that's right (laughs) does a nice tie in there Colin
5: you can you can edit that out (laughs)
2: no we'll let you sound stupid (laughs) that's going to be the tweet actually (laughs) yes exactly so Cy, um could you talk a little bit about uh the connection if there is can you tell us is there a connection between uh calvinism and reformed theology and presuppositional apologetics and if there is what is that
4: you guys are calvinists (laughs) man
2: (laughs) click where where did i go
4: you know it's funny because uh I'm at my maximum for friends right now. On Facebook, you're only allowed to have 5,000. And sometimes I get some really genuine people that contact me, want to add me as a a friend. And since I'm maxed out, I can't add anybody. But I don't know if you saw my post the other day. I said that I'm theonomic and Calvinistic. (laughs) Because just saying something like that, and I lose 10, 20 friends. When I spoke at that theonomy conference down in Arizona, I must have lost 40 or 50 friends just because I was speaking there. So, wow. but no, there's definitely a, it's definitely a reformed apologetic. Now I don't wear that on my sleeve when I go, especially in the Southern States and say, well, I'm a Calvinist as a reformed apologetic. Let me teach a priest up because I wouldn't get my foot in the door, but I teach it exactly like I do everywhere else. I just don't use the specific terms. However, you know, what's a tenet of reformed theology? Salvation is 100% of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now here, here's the thing. If you contribute to your salvation in any way, give the person evidence. It makes total sense to give the person evidence if they contribute to their salvation. But since salvation is of the Lord, it makes no sense whatsoever. So what I try to do when I defend the faith is I do it biblically, because salvation is of the Lord. So I try to honor him. Now, people say, do you see more converts? Well, I hope that we do, but that's not up to us. It's up to the Holy Spirit.
5: What a relief it is to realize that you are not the one who does the work of salvation. And, and your clever arguments really... Don't amount to much uh in in the long run now we're we're called to be always ready and I've heard you use that that verse and use it appropriately about being ready to give an answer after sanctifying the Lord in your hearts but really that that's the key, not so much uh a a long study of of apologetics because the average person on the street should be able to do exactly what we 're doing yeah. so so we shouldn't be thinking that, like, oh, I, I don't, I don't have the tools. I'm not equipped and not ready enough. Uh, so I'm not going to say anything to my neighbor or coworker. We need to trust and rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work of conversion for us and not be so worried about it.
4: Right. I, I tell people Scripture does not say Jesus did not say in John ten twenty seven, my sheep here size really good argument. You know, and and the, and the problem is if you look at my early stuff, I do presuppositional apologetics differently than I did before as well. And I'm trying to cut out the middleman. The years that I slog through of going through the finer points of the argument to try and get to where I am now, but I'm beginning to see that that's impossible. You know, I think it might almost be impossible that people have to see the futility, because what we're doing is we're reducing the presuppositional argument into an evidential argument. We're trying to get the person to conclude God through presuppositions, and that's not the case at all. See, but I used to go to, I remember, it's online, you know, it's even on my website, but I went to a church and I was talking about the preconditions of intelligibility. God is universal, or uh, logic is universal, abstract, invariant. God is universal. He's not made of matter. He does not change. And all this kind of, and the guys were loving it. They were writing all this stuff down. Oh, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this. And the women in the audience, they're, you know, Their eyes were glazing over. They said, oh, I had to learn all this evidence, and now I have to learn the preconditions of intelligibility. Are are you kidding me? (laughs) And it was actually the women in the audience and the women that I've met since then who've helped me understand this apologetic better. It's not about the fine points of the argument. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about who God is. So I'll go to a conference now, and I'll say, you know what? I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm not going to teach you how to defend your faith in God today. I'm going to teach you how to defend your faith that your parents exist. And they look at me like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you doing? You know, that's crazy. I said, of course it's crazy. Why is it crazy? Because you know your parents. So why do I have to come here and teach you how to defend your faith in God? Mm-hmm. See, it's a relational issue. It, it's not an evidential issue. And so that's what I've been doing. See, what I say is that in, in Luke twenty-one fifteen, Jesus said, I will give you words and wisdom that your adversary will not be able to resist or contradict. He's basically given us a nuclear bomb. And what do we do? We take the thing apart to see how it works, which is fine. You know, we want to see where the atom is split, where the power supplies, where the wiring, the capacitor. We want we want to see all that stuff. And then we go out in the street and somebody says, I don't believe in God. And you say, well, look at this nice bomb that I have. And we take it apart. We show them where the atom is split. We show them where the, the power supplies instead of just hitting the button. And women are far better at that. So somebody, see, the guy has to win the argument. But somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I don't believe in God. You know, the proper answer is, well, the Bible says you do, sir. Well, no, I don't. Well, the Bible says you do, sir. And that's fine, typically, for the women. They don't have to win that argument. And the guy says, well, let me try and expose to you why the fact that you really do know that God exists. And I think we have to get more back, we have to get back to our presuppositions that the Bible is true and that God exists. And that's our argument. Our argument is not the finer points of the bomb. Our argument is that God exists, his word is true, and that's what converts people, not argumentation.
2: Can you address circular
4: reasoning real quick? Sure. What's wrong with that? <laughs> See, I, that's, that's I agree. the thing. No, no, but the thing is, it depends on who I'm talking to. Because if I'm out on, on the street and I'm talking with somebody, you know, I say, well, I appeal to God to prove that God exists. And they say, well, that's circular. To an unbeliever, I'll just say, well, what's wrong with that? And I'm not saying that I say circular reasoning is all right. But I'm saying that if you don't start with God, you can have a problem with circular reasoning. Mm -hmm. Now, now that's you know that's again more of the philosophical argument, which you know sometimes I get criticized for not getting deeper into the argument when I'm talking with people. But what I want to do is that if somebody sees one of my debates or one of my encounters, says, "Well, I can do that," and if I get too deep into the argumentation, that people are going to say, "Well, I can't do that," and like there is no office of apologist in Scripture. Because we're all supposed to be able to do it. There's no office of love your neighborist either. You know, so for me to call myself an apologist is actually ridiculous. I think, you know, we live in a different time than we did at biblical times. But when I go to a place, I don't really teach apologetics. I teach people what not to do. And it's just stripping away the nonsense that we've been taught most of our lives so that people can come back to the fundamentals of who God is. And, okay, sorry, back back to circular reasoning. So the unbeliever can have no objection to circular reasoning because when they say that's fallacious... They say it contravenes the law of logic. And I say, well, where do you get logic without God? Now, the Christian might say it's circular, and I, and I will explain to them, and sometimes I'll do it to unbelievers as well, is that all ultimate authority claims necessarily must be circular. Because if they're not circular, they lose that authority. If you appeal, appeal to anything else to prove God, then God is no longer your ultimate authority, that other thing that you appeal to. But the difference is, and this is what I ask on the street, I say, can God make us certain of things? And you'd have to be intellectually honest to say no that he can't. So that's our way out of the circle. God makes us certain. How are you certain of anything without being circular? They've already conceded that we can have certainty, that we can have knowledge at all. So, but all ultimate authority claims are necessarily circular. And of course, Van Til describes that our the Christian view as virtuously circular, whereas the unbeliever has a vicious circle.
2: Something you you were talking about earlier with in regards to salvation and the gospel. Um, do you feel that it's important to get to the gospel in every situation in every conversation, or is it okay to do as you know? I've heard Greg Kokel used to always say he just wants to put a stone in someone's shoe. So if he doesn't get to the if he doesn't get to the gospel, it's not the end of the world. This you know, it'll just put a stone in someone's shoe and it'll they'll think about it and it'll bug them.
4: And um,
2: what's your thought on that?
4: I've uh, met Greg Kokel. I drove him to the airport once uh, when we were in Jersey. Drove him to the airport in Philly, and I was in the car with him for like an hour and a half. Wonderful guy. We had a great talk. It was actually not about apologetics, and, uh, you know, we had a disagreement, and uh, it was still, you know, very cordial, and his next show, he spoke for about the first 15 minutes telling me why I was wrong. He didn't mention me by name, but uh, it was real interesting. But that stone-in-the-shoe analogy, what I would like to do one day is is make a poster of somebody lying dead in front of a bus with their shoe half off and a stone in it, hmm. you know, because... You know, there is some urgency. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, and I'm not a stone-in-the-shoe type. But one thing is is interesting, though, when you say, do you want to get to the gospel in each encounter? And when people ask me that question, and people ask me that a lot more at the beginning of my ministry, and I realize that if you have to ask me that question, it means I'm doing it wrong. Mm. Because apologetics is not pre-evangelism. Apologetics should be evangelist, should be an exposition of the gospel. So this is how I explain, well, what is the gospel? That Jesus Christ came and he died to save sinners. And you get people on the street, well, I'm not a sinner. So what I'm doing with the presuppositional apologetic is exposing that every word out of their mouth, every thought in their head, if they don't give glory to God, they can't make sense of it, and they're sinning. So what I'm doing with the apologetic is exposing the fact that <laughs> everything they do is sinful in the eyes of God. Like uh, Paul Washer said, your problem is not that you have sinned. Your problem is that you've done nothing but sin. And that's what this apologetic shows. Unless you start with God, unless you give him the glory for everything you do, your life is sin. And I say that is the entrance to the gospel. And that's what I try and do. And when I expose that, and then I tell them the only way out of the hell that each and every one of us deserves because of our sin. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ.
3: Mm. Amen. But on that, I think that's such a huge thing in our culture is that, and a lot of it stems from, uh, I think, like the Josh McDowell era. Like It's funny because Josh McDowell talks about the stewed tomato in the shoe. Like mm. He talks about, like the, he, and he, he based it on evidence, like, well, how do you know the resurrection is not real? Like, how, like he kind of does this thing where he correlates it to a runner who says that, he, he wins races because there's a stewed tomato in his shoe. And people are like, well, that makes no sense. How do you do that? He's like, well, I'm winning the races, and I'm telling you there's a stewed tomato in my shoe. So who are you to doubt me? And so he uses that to like, well, the, I'm, I'm saying the resurrection is real. So it's kind of like a self-validation kind of thing, which I get it. But um, but on the, the whole thing with what, what, what you said, evangelism should be an exposition of the gospel, really flies in the face of that. And I think I completely agree with you because we're told – to give a hope, or give the reason for the hope that is in us, and what's the hope? What's what? What is? What is that reason for that hope? It's not the laws of logic, and it's not um, this and that. It is King Jesus. Like our Amen. hope is. The good news that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. And Paul says in Romans that it's concerning, this gospel is concerning the Son. It's not concerning anything else. It doesn't matter what some philosopher wants to say or what some pastor wants to say. Like the, the scriptures are pretty clear that the, the hope is, the, the, the reason for the hope is that. And so we have this like culture and event, like I was raising that. I was raised in this idea where I have to be an expert in so many different ways areas of thought. And so that really messed me up when I first got into college. Cause I'm all right, I need to do a, I need to do a triple major because I need to get my philosophy, but I also need to get my physics and I need to get this. And I was a mess. I was a complete mess when I, when right. I first got into college, but then like sigh, and, and brother, you helped me a lot. Like you really, you, you. I don't think you realize like you say that you're nobody and amen. And, and I, that, that just shows your heart, but there's a lot of my generation that needed to hear what you have to say. And that is that just know the gospel, know the God you serve and know the word that he's given you and everything else. I mean, it, it really goes along with, you know, Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his standard and everything else will, will be added unto you. So I just want to, th- that that statement you made though, evangelism should be an exposition of the gospel. I really think that all these conferences and all these Uh, evangelical things that are going on and just our culture as a whole the church needs to really hear that and i think they really need to grab onto that
4: well praise god for that brother I i really appreciate that but here's another reason that it's reformed apologetic scripture talks about sheep and it talks about goats one thing it never says is that goats become sheep like i said jesus said my sheep hear my voice but the problem is all these evidentialists are trying to convert goats and we don't know who the sheep and the goats are, but I don't tr- change my argumentation just because somebody doesn't get it or doesn't respond to it. I keep speaking the truth to them. But, but here's the problem. These evidential arguments, these classical arguments, who do they glorify? They glorify the apologist. You see you see somebody watching, you know, I don't want to really throw out names, but a William, uh, William Lane Craig debate. I used to love his debates. Do you know what my response would be after I watched his debate? Look how smart that guy is. I could never do that. I have to study this, I have to study... People watch one of my debates and they say, oh, that guy's an idiot, I can do that. <laughs> you know, and that's that to me is is heartwarming. When people say... I remember Eric Hovind, the first time I went down to Florida, he's a good friend of mine now. And um, I went down there and after spending a week with him, he said one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me when coming to understand this apologetic. And he's allowed me to share this story. But he said, you know, before I thought I had to study biology, I thought I had to study physics and all that. He says, I have to read my Bible more. Mm. And you know, when I'm out in the street... And I have an encounter with an unbeliever. You know what my first reaction is when I go home? I have to read my Bible more. Yeah. You know, and, and I had a pastor come up to me. He says, you know, I'm, I'm doing the street stuff. I'm, I'm starting to get this. And, you know, I can deal with the atheist, but uh, I'm always worried about the other shoe that's going to fall, that I'm going to run into somebody who's going to ask me something that I don't know. And I said to this pastor, in five minutes, you can do this better than I can because you have the biblical background you can answer these people biblically that's what presuppositional apologetics is and that's what we have to get back
0: don't you see that Jesus purchased me see the blood on that mercy seat as a man he was born in Bethlehem but he's from eternity now that's five Michael five you believe it's God yes I do the only hero to die for the villains that's home Etic like haiku I was prophetic in prophet
2: you speak on, um real quick the i think probably one of the biggest issues i think most most people who aren't pre-sub um maybe not it's like an it's not an argument against it but maybe one of the biggest issues that they find at least maybe just their friends um probably cage stagers, but their friends who are newly into pre-sub can you address the issue of arrogance and pride that comes up with
4: with this well absolutely the the thing is um i tell people that when you engage somebody pre positionally, you're basically shooting holes into their airplane and that airplane is coming down. And if you're a jerk about it, they're not coming to you. They're not coming to you for an exposition of the gospel. You know, like I say in the film, they're, they're ditching a Lake Hindu or, or Lake Scientology. I remember the very first time that I, I taught priests up, it was to a group of teenagers. And um, one of the fathers came up to me afterwards and he said, um, Sai, my son, he, he just loved your talk. He can't wait to get to school tomorrow. And I I just played that over in my head because it's the first time I taught. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And I played this over in my head for quite a while because I I was so thrilled with with that response. And then it struck me. I I thought, what if I was teaching karate to these teenagers? (laughs) And the father said, my son can't wait to get to school tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, you know, maybe it was genuine. Maybe he just had a a good defense and he was just more confident. That might have been the case. But maybe he wanted to go and kick some butt. You know, and that's the problem is that we've been uh, downtrodden with such terrible arguments for most of our lives that sometimes we learn this and we want to go and return the favor. And the thing is, I would rather have people do apologetics wrong if they're going to be a jerk about it. So
5: I have a question, um, kind of piggybacking what you were just talking about, and then looking at how to answer the fool. When I when I watched that video, I was I was so excited. I wanted to go and beat somebody up <laughs> apologetically after I after I saw it and I and at the end of the at the end of the video we could see your concern um for uh what was the gentleman's name that you were debating Frank, they, Franco yeah um yeah and, and the the producer was kind of behind the scenes you were having more of a conversation with him um so I guess my my question is like how should we
4: oh, oh that uh, fellow sorry yeah uh
5: how should we approach when we get the training the quote-unquote training the the lethal training as it were how how do we use that um, judiciously when we're dealing with with somebody who's belligerent or someone who's arrogant versus somebody who's you know their heart is more soft?
4: It's it's uh, I remember my friend Chad Williams, um, ex Navy Seal, used to work at Living Waters, and uh, he told me the story once when this fellow came up to me, he was very belligerent, and Chad just said to him, "No gospel for you." i was thinking of the Seinfeld episode. No gospel no for you. Come come back one year. <laughs> and and the guy he walked away and then he came back half an hour later and he was apologetic and I think Chad shared the gospel with him and um, you know as far as the apologetic goes I will expose the absurdity of their worldview, and you know pray for them like sometimes I'll go to a campus and somebody will say well I don't believe in God and I say well the Bible says you do no I don't believe in God well the Bible says you do sir I do not believe in God well the Bible says you do and then they you know they might get animated they say I do not believe in God I say well then you're fine have a nice day And they look at me like, what? (laughs) You're not going to argue with me? And, of course, you know, they're not okay because they're still under the sin of Adam. But, you know, as they're walking away, I make sure to say, but the Bible says you do. And now, of course, it's nice to have the philosophical argument in your back pocket, you know, for the person who denies logic or something like that. However, that's why it's that simple. Just tell them what the Bible says. If somebody says anything that contradicts the Bible, this is what I give. I give a two-step approach. No matter what the person says that contradicts Scripture, that's not what the Bible says. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Oh, you don't believe Noah's Ark? Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible said it happened. You don't believe Jesus ever walked the earth? Well, that's not what the Bible says. And of course, they look at you, I don't believe your Bible. It's written by Bronze Age goat herders. You know, I I don't believe your Bible. I say, oh, so you don't believe the Bible's true? And they say, no. I say, well, this is the second step. Where do you get truth without God? So whatever they say that contradicts scripture, I say, well, that's not what the Bible says. They say, I don't believe your Bible. So, So you don't believe it's true that assumes a standard of truth which they cannot get without God. So it's that simple. And that's why I say, if you know your Bible, you can defend your faith better than I can. I I remember the first time that I met uh, Nate Stoyer at a conference in New Jersey. And he came up to me and he said, Sai, I, I hear you're a really good apologist. I want you to teach me. All I do is answer with scripture. I said, Nate, don't listen to a word I say. I said, if you can answer with scripture, do it. And that's you know more and more. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what you know. I'm working with some friends here to try and get these objections, the most common objections, and rather than give the presuppositional philosophical argument, give the scripture verse that tears that argument down.
2: Um, I got a question. I just thought of. So practically speaking, um, what what do you say to someone? So you're you're in a situation with somebody, and you're saying, um, you know, God has to exist for you to be able to form arguments and to even talk to me, and say, okay, okay, I'll grant you that. I that God has to exist for me to be able to have a rational conversation with you. Why does it have to be the God of the Bible? Why can't it be the God of Islam or the God of the gods of Hinduism? Why does it have to be the Christian God? What what do you say to that?
4: Right. And that's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the argument, not only among unbelievers, but among believers as well. Because the argument isn't all of these things, logic, you know, morality, science, rationality, therefore God. That's not the argument. The argument is the God of Christianity, therefore all of these things. You see, we don't conclude the God of Christianity, we start with the God of Christianity. Now, of course, you might somebody meet somebody on the street who says, well, no, actually, um, I believe that the starting point is this God. Now, that's a different argument than saying, well, why do not, do you not conclude this God? Because I don't. But you might run into a Muslim who says, well, actually, I think that the necessary preconditions for all these things are are my God, the the God of Islam. And then it's a bit of a different argument. And we have a a website called 121tracks.com. You can either do the numbers 121 or O-N-E, 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 2, O-N-E, 121tracks.com. And we actually go through eight different worldviews how you might engage the person presuppositionally. And I do the same thing, and I've been criticized, but I reduce the argument down to um, epistemology, down to the theory of knowledge, because I say that's the easiest to prove in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. So I say, you do not start with that God. How can you know anything? And then I deconstruct their view. But I say that even these worldview tracks and even a lot of the debates I see out, out there miss the point, because what do we say to the unbeliever? You really know that God exists. Now, you see a debate with a Mormon, you see a debate with a Muslim. Have you ever heard the debater say, well, actually, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You need to repent. We never. Why don't we do that? Because according to the presuppositional position in Romans 1, everyone immediately knows the God that exists. Why do we only tell the atheist that, or, or the professed atheist that? And I'm saying that more and more we have to get into that. So it doesn't matter what worldview they come they come at you with. Because when they, this is what I say, look, let's say you're about to debate a Muslim and he gets hit by a bus, and you never get to witness to him. Does anybody think this pe- person has a, an excuse when they stand before God? Does anybody think this person is going to say, oops, I picked the wrong one? No, they're going to be standing in front of the God they know exists. And I think we have to do it with gentleness and respect, of course, but we have to confront them at that level. We have to confront them with the gospel, telling them about the God that they know exists and about their only way for salvation.
1: One of the things about precept. That that resonates with me. Rather than working through a series of complicated arguments, everything always goes back to scripture. Like the reason that we do precept versus anything else is because we the foundational issue is that we believe what the Bible says about the unbeliever. And I remember when I was first um, introduced to precept via How to Answer the Fool, um, I just was like. Like my mind was blown um, in like fifteen different ways because I was like, "Wait, the Bible says that where?" And then I was like, "How can I? How can I have missed that? Having read the Bible, you know, several times already, and I, d- I never remember reading that." And um, one of the, one of the things, Cy, that you brought up, and that I hear you bring up frequently, is the most famous apologetic verse. Can you talk about that? First, First Peter three fifteen.
4: First Peter three fifteen. Let me pull it up here. While you're looking
3: for that, just a side note on how I met Colin. I met Colin because him and him and me began to like we just we have mutual friends on Facebook, but we were both like I just saw him engaging non belief presuppositionally like like crazy. I was like this mm-hmm. dude like <laughs> this dude's awesome.
4: Well the interesting thing is that um how to answer the fool's only been out since twenty thirteen. And you listen to Colin now, I mean um he probably learned it faster than anybody that that I've seen out there because he went even he went on that same show that I was on you know at the end of the film there that um the place and he did quite well what was that guy's name dr shook or whatever and uh, yeah. this guy would just not answer your questions and you know I thought it was brilliant and you hadn't been a pre supper that long so you know I thought that was that was really cool and then I got a chance to meet you out in California which was neat too yeah that was fun
1: yeah it it was one of those things that just like it, it just clicked so quickly because I I was it was like a, a missing missing puzzle piece in my theology was realizing, like, because I, I would have discussions with non-believers um, and talk through all of the traditional classical arguments and stuff like that. And it just got to the point where it was frustrating because somebody would, you know, quote 500 contradictions in scripture and I would go back and try to respond to them one at a time. And it was just, super tiring and literally a week after i got a question like that and i was like i'm gonna have to get back to you i don't have the time to do this right now i watched how to answer the fool and so i immediately like the next day after i watched how to answer the fool i jumped back on there and i was like why are contradictions wrong and he's like oh going precept on me this conversation is over it's it was just like it it was baffling that like instantaneously I saw that, wait a second. Okay. So all, all I did was, all I did was ask him to tell me why contradictions are wrong. That was, I mean, like a three-year-old can ask that question. Why is, why is that a bad thing? Why, why do we, why can't we contradict ourselves? And he said, I'm not going to have this conversation with you because he knew that he couldn't. Mm -hmm. And at the time I had no idea what had just happened. I was like, oh, that's weird. Why doesn't he want to talk to me? (laughs) And then I realized, oh, I think he's had this conversation before and realizes that he doesn't want to go there.
4: For those people who are listening along who who might not ever have heard that objection, the Christian can answer that. Why are contradictions wrong? Because contradictions amount to lying, and God says, do not lie. So we can answer that question, but why in a world that's only a random chance of matter, you know, do you forbid contradictions? You're actually borrowing from the Christian to argue against the Christian. Like I say, they're borrowing ammunition. But we're talking about... Um, about, about Scripture, how biblical this apologetic is. A friend of mine, he was examining this apologetic, and what he did, he would take one of Greg Bonson's books, and he took one of R.C. Sproul's books, and he said, Greg Bonson's book, Scripture, 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 and he was in R.C. Sproul's apologetic book, and he was a few chapters in, and he hadn't had one Scripture verse yet. Wow. So, yeah. but we're, we're talking about 1 Peter 3.15. Sorry, I, I should know it by heart, but uh, I, I probably do. <laughs> but, I, see... What I say, and I actually, in my talks, I play William Lane Craig going to apologetics conference, and he says, the Bible says we have to defend our faith, and he reads 1 Peter 3.15, and he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And then I play it again, and I say, well, well what's wrong with that? that? That's from the Bible, right? And people say, yeah, yeah, and they don't see the problem with it. But that's not where that verse starts. Where does that verse start? 1 Peter 3.15 but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. See, we forget about that part. We try to argue for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and we do it by abandoning it. When Scripture says, no, we have to start with the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not argue to it. We have to start with it. And, you know, even the the, the, the Great Commission, you know, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And we start the Great Commission with go therefore, you know. And when you see a verse like, go there for," you have to think, go what for? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go for, and we forget that. You look at all these apologetic methodologies, and they're trying to argue for the authority of Jesus Christ. And how are they doing it? By elevating the unbeliever to the position of judge. You know, we're, we're trying to give them evidence to try and convince them that God exists. When we know that if they get hit by a bus before you talk to them, they have no excuse, because they know. Hmm. My friend Corey came, came up with a slogan that I really like. He says, we go because they know. Wow. Because if these people did not know that God exists, witnessing to them would be wicked. If they did not know, it, you think it would logically follow that they had an excuse. So what does witnessing do to that person? It removes their excuse. Sure, they could be saved, but if you're giving them an opportunity that they might go to hell. But why do we send missionaries? Because they know. They have sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation but not for their salvation. That's why we send missionaries to tell them about the only way out of the hell that each and every one of us deserves.
2: That reminds me of something I read in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity a long time ago, where he talks about, um, um, I, I don't remember the exact wording that he had, but I summarize it as, how could a man who was blind since birth try to comprehend what the light is worth? So if someone is blind their whole life, they don't even understand the concept of light, how could you try to explain that to them? So the the fact that we, the, the very fact that we uh, can see light proves that it exists. The very fact that we can understand and we can even talk about God proves that he exists. So it's kind of like that, like the fact that, you know, if if they don't even know, well, then they have no excuse. If If it's not possible right. for a blind man to see light, you can't fault him for not seeing or understanding or knowing, even knowing about lights. How would he right. even know that light exists if he can't see. If his eyes don't work, he can't even see anything. He doesn't right, even that's... understand what dark and light is.
4: Mm-hmm. That, that actually reminds me of a, a very good point to it, related to that because now we have a biblical apologetic. Now we're speaking the truth to the unbeliever. And what do we think? Oh, these people are going to drop the, to their knees. They're going to be converted. They're going to be following us into church. And that's not the case. I mean, you hope that God blesses that, but now you're honoring him. The difference is now that you're speaking truthfully uh, about God. And so this is the question that I ask. So people get frustrated when they do presuppositional apologetics. I hate when people say, I, I did presupp on the guy. I say, you just spoke truthfully. You just spoke biblically to the person. But this is the question, you know, when people get frustrated with it. I say, when is the unbeliever going to get this argument? Do you know when they're going to get it? When God saves them. <laughs> yeah, so here we're thinking, okay, I've got this perfect argument. Now they're going to get it. Now they're going to be saved. no. Repentance comes before a knowledge of the truth, not after. And this is one of the examples that I give how blatantly obvious that is. It was my third debate with Paul Baird. I did it down at Eric Coven Studios down in uh, Pensacola, Florida. And I knew what he was going to say. I've been reading his blog, and you know, we had a lot of exchanges. And I said, Paul, is it impossible for God to exist? And he says, no, it's not impossible for God to exist. I said, Paul, is it impossible for the Bible to be what it claims to be? And he says, yes. And I said, Paul, why is it impossible for the Bible to be what it claims to be? And he said, because there's so many competing revelations, you'd never know which one is true. And I knew he was going to say that because he said it on his blog. So I was prepared for that. And I said, Paul, would it make sense to say that there's no real money because there's counterfeit money? And he got all quiet and he was humming and hawing. Now, of course, a blatantly obvious, easy answer. And he's humming over, you know, he's humming and hawing. And then I said, Paul, would it make sense to say that there's no real money because there is counterfeit money? And do you know what he said to me? Yes. Now, does he know that that's an absurd answer? Of course he does. But the thing is, if he professes it, he's giving up his worldview. It's something he cannot do. So that even to the degree that they do understand the argument, they must, they must suppress it. Unless, of course, the Holy Spirit is already working in them. And that's how the priest up, put the stone in someone's shoes. <laughs>
0: Jesus. <laughs> even though we still on earth huh in heavenly places we're seated Ooh, Ephesians piece you should read it uh-huh. it's only cuz we're in jesus yeah. Well i don't think some believe i don't, it. Think, so. and I don't think that they see you they, they think the church is defeated but well, why we call them can it jesus? seems to
1: me too why? that um because of the nature of presuppositionalism as far as immediately exposing the wickedness of a person's worldview, um it it just seems to make people angry faster than, for example, I could sit around a table and have a discussion about, you know, evidence for and against uh, a global flood for, I mean, for hours and hours and hours and everything just like we're just like going back and forth and having a good old time. But as soon as, it, as, soon as I start to th- think biblically and as soon as I start to realize these people are going to hell and this isn't just a, you know, a fun conversation, uh, it, it just changes the nature of the conversation immediately. And when you start exposing uh, their wickedness and the requirement of them to constantly um, supp- actively suppress the truth of God in order to live, their, in order to attempt to live their life consistently, even though they can't actually do it, uh, they just they get frustrated about that, and and so it seems like there's an, an escalation that happens because it's more serious in that way. What do you think about that?
4: Yeah, well, absolutely. But I was really convicted by a Doug Wilson sermon that I heard probably about a year ago now and um, he said something that I thought was, you know, really quite profound. He said, seek to win the man, not the argument. Mm. Now, of course, Doug Wilson's a Calvinist as well. Know that we cannot win the man. But seek to win the man, not the argument. We're going to win the argument by default. But here's the problem. Sometimes, you know, and it happens a lot of times, people happen into your conversation halfway through it. And, you know, I'm really convicted that if that person watches you debating with the unbeliever, and if it does not look like you want that to be that person to be saved mm. you're doing it wrong yeah you know and of course there is going to be a time for a re- rebuke and i understand that but i think more often than not people are you know flexing their uh, pre muscles instead of pleading with them you know and, and that's what we have to have we have to have that pleading in our hearts in our eyes when we talk with these unbelievers that the worldviews are are folly, not just not just demolish them for the sake of doing it, but to really have a, a passion, a concern for their souls. And hopefully that's more and more evident in, you know, what I do out in the street. And, you know, that's what that's the kind of thing that you see, the tears in the people's eyes that you're talking to because you, now they see your heart as well. And mm-hmm. um, and that's why, you know, people see how to answer the fool and sometimes they come out to me. It's happened to me a couple of times at conferences. They said, I watched your film and I hated you. And they said, I'm so glad you came here because now I see your heart. Now, sure, I think that I was probably a little rougher around the edges in, in, in that film, but also people did not see that I talked with that Franco guy for like two hours afterwards, the guy at the end of the film. Yeah. And they don't see, you know, the other stuff that happens there because, you know, that's not really exciting filmmaking. But we didn't talk about the the next film, debating Dillahunty. It's a documentary based on the debate that I did with Matt Dillahunty last year. And like Tony Miano says, in the first film we we see the mind of God behind the apologetic and in debating Delahunty we see the heart of God behind the apologetic. And I think that's you know, not only uh, factual, but I think it's uh, it's evident in how I've changed myself and my understanding of the apologetic mm. and how I approach the unbeliever. Because, like I say, it's a tendency when you've been beaten down for the the longest time, even if you don't want to do it like that, it's a tendency to return the favor, and we just have to be very careful with that. so
5: I, I think what Dustin was kind of getting at was kind of along the lines of what you've been talking about the the stone in the shoe idea, and and I get I think a lot of people who are new to this or don't know how exactly to approach someone are are wondering the um, the practical question when you meet somebody for the first time say you move into a new apartment and you have a neighbor next door you know at what point do you just go into the gospel and what part do you point do you just say hey you want to come over and have a drink you know like so i i think a lot of people are, are interested in figuring out the the wisdom behind launching into gospel conversations and just and just building a foundation and a framework that that might initially seem a little secret sensitive but really is right. under the idea that we want to um, be a
4: loving neighbor to somebody and show that we really care about them. Well, I can give you the, the factual answer what we're supposed to do, but I can't say that in my own life I've been consistent with that. You know, and that's, that's to my own detriment, I think. But I think that you have to start with the gospel immediately. You know, at least give your position on that. Because here's the problem. If you start with some kind of friendship, and you're just buddy-buddy with this person, then you finally invite them over, and then, you know, maybe a few months down the line, you say, well, I've got something I want to share with you. Then they're going to think that a whole few months ahead of that was all a sham, Oh, you know, you're doing this because you have an agenda of conversion. And that happened to me before I was presuppositional. A friend of mine disowned me because I said I had, he said I had an agenda of conversion. Of course, I don't have an agenda of conversion because I can't convert anybody, but I waited to share the gospel with this fellow. I'm thinking, if you share the gospel with your neighbor immediately, look, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm, you know, what's your background? You might want to, you know, start off lightly, but then share the gospel with them. And then when you invite them over, it's not a big surprise when you tell them where you're coming from. So, you know, I think that, you know, I think uh, it was John Speed or, or even Tony Miano. He said, friendship evangelism is neither friendship nor evangelism. But of course, you know, we have to befriend our neighbors. But I think it's important that they know where you stand. And I'm not saying that, that I'm the shining example of that. I'm a, I'm a factory worker. And you know, I'm I'm new at this. It's not an excuse, but I think I've really failed with that too. But I say that's what we're supposed to do. Am I consistent with that? No, and I think it's a failing of mine.
5: And and like for uh, the thing that I'm struggling with is, there are plenty of people that I've known for ten years that I've never shared the gospel with, maybe at my work. And there are other people, like my I have a neighbor who lives next door to me, who I was I, I was very. Um, intentional about sharing the gospel very early. He listened politely. He let me talk for a while. He asked a few questions or he kind of nodded. And then it was it was kind of like, okay, have a nice day. And then we're still friends a year right. and a half later. We, we go over each other's houses. We hang out all the time. I, I've mentioned thing, spiritual things several more times in the meantime. But now it's kind of like I've thrown out that, that that idea and the information there. I've explained where I'm at. We're still friends, but now it's like it's like we've gotten past that part of our relationship. and And how do I bring it back to right? And like, and how often do I bring it back? Do you know? Do we just hang out sometimes? And sometimes I talk about the gospel, and sometimes I don't. Right. What's What's the? It's hard to know the practical application now.
2: When you think about it, too, when you're in that daily living with your neighbor. How much easier and less uncomfortable is it for when you're talking about, you know, something in the news about ISIS or some something bad happening or just anything in life, how much more comfortable is it for you to say, Well, you know, this is what I think, because he knows you're a Christian versus, well, I haven't told him yet. So, is it gonna be weird if I'm like, well, you know, I think God's sovereign and he doesn't even know I believe in God? And you get that out of the way, it makes interaction and in, and in living your life as a Christian that much easier because you're you're not afraid to have a conversation from your perspective at any time.
4: Well, absolutely. I think that's what this apologetic does, is it gives people confidence. I've had uh, emails from young men who have gone to atheistic YouTube channels, and they said prior to understanding the apologetic, they were afraid to go to these atheist YouTube videos because they thought it would shake their faith. Now do they go to those same videos and they laugh. You know, I don't think that's an appropriate response. They don't laugh at the unbeliever, but at the folly of unbelief. Now, if you shared the gospel with your neighbor... They know what you believe. And of course, you know, since our foundation is Christ, since it's the truth of the Bible, that those opportunities are going to come up a lot. Like, like I say, if you're talking about ISIS or something like that. But you know what's going to happen? More often than not, if you're confident in your belief, and if you give the biblical answer, more often than not, they are the people who are going to bring it up. Now, here's the very interesting thing about that, too. If you're debating about the complexity of the eye with somebody and you got somebody who's just saying, well, no, you know the Bible's true, you need to repent. Now, when that person has tragedy in their life, who are they coming to? They're not coming to the guy who debated with them for six hours about the complexity of the eye. They're coming to the guy who didn't believe them, hmm. who spoke from the truth of Scripture. That's who they're coming to. So that's what, that's what I do. I have a really good friend. I talk about him in most of my talks, and I, I still see him uh, quite regularly. And more often than not, he'll bring it up. But he's, he's the fellow that, that said to me at that restaurant, he said, "Sai, how are you so certain that God exists? And, you know, I would have given him very evidential answers in the past, but I looked him in the eye and I said, you know how I'm so certain that God exists? The same way you are. But I'm following him and you're not. And he got up from the table and he went to the restroom. And we'd been to the restroom like five minutes earlier. Why did he walk away from the table? Because he was crying. Now, I still see this fellow quite regularly and... He'll bring it up. You see, do you know what I do with him when if we go to a movie or something like that? As we're about to part, I say, "Repent. You could die tonight. You could die going." home. and he'll what he'll do is he'll he'll send me a message on Skype or so, and he says, "I made it." <laughs> you know, so you know, I, I think wow. it, we we have to have a, a sense of urgency, but they know what we believe, and it will come up in conversation. And a lot of times, they won't they don't want to hear it. And I think you know, there might be a time even to separate friendship if they will not let you be who you are, then they're the ones who are not being tolerant of what we believe. So there might be a time that you separate that. But with this fellow, you know, we talk, and I think just the air of confidence that I have when I talk with him, he knows that it's true. He knows that I know. And if he knows that he brings it up, he's going to get, a, you know, hopefully a solid biblical answer. And a lot of times they don't want that. But um, I don't know if that's that answer is helpful, but that's what I do. And like I say, I'm not probably a shining example of that. You know, I, I think I love what I would recommend is that you go to Tony Miano's uh, um, video, his, his YouTube channel, and look at his stuff. Some wonderful stuff. He does this thing where he goes to a um, the Starbucks on the back of his computer. He says, "Have a seat, let's talk about God." I mean, that's fantastic. I think somebody should put that on, on a T-shirt. You know, I think that that's great. But um, yeah, and it's something that I'm working on because for me, I remember the very first time that I went to share my faith. It was in North Carolina on the campuses, like doing this on the streets, and I was with the. Dustin Seegers, and I was handing out tracts. And it was a cold day in North Carolina, and people were walking by without a coat on. I had no problem telling them, hey, you should be wearing a coat today. You know, it's pretty cold. You should be wearing a coat. Do you think I could tell them that they need a savior? I could tell them they need a coat. I couldn't tell them that they need a savior. Now, why was that? And for me, it was a pride issue. I did not want them to think of me like the last freak that was out there calling women sluts for wearing short skirts. You know, I did not want to be associated with that person. And it was a pride issue for me. And so, where I had no problem standing up preaching in the public, I had a problem handing out tracts, because it's it's an immediate rejection of you and your worldview, and it's something that I still fight. I mean, I've handed out a lot of tracts now, so it's not such an issue anymore, but I think it's a constant battle, and for me, it's a pride issue.
1: So, one of the other things about presuppositionalism, um, the the longer that I've been um, pre-sup, if you want to say that, the longer that I've understood the truth of what Scripture has to say about the unbeliever, the the longer it's, uh, the more it affects how I think about everything differently. And the first thing that changed was how I read scripture differently. I started to see things pop off the page that I maybe just glossed over before. And I started questioning my own presuppositions about a lot of things. Um, but then even even the more that I study, you know, like some more in-depth aspects of presuppositionalism, I, I start to see how the way of thinking of, uh, presuppositionalist really affects the way that you look at every area of life differently.
4: Absolutely. Um, I think it's uh, Steve Slissel. I don't use this analogy a lot, but I, I really loved it. He says um, Imagine that you're a, a college student and you get your first apartment and you're going up those stairs and your hands are, are full. You got a futon, you got your lamp, you got your television and your books. And you go up and you open your uh, apartment, uh, your, your living room there. And in the living room is this huge angry gorilla and he says where is all your stuff going and he says exactly where the gorilla wants it to go Hmm. and that's the thing our presuppositions are the gorilla in our mind and everything that comes into our minds from television from our friends from our work goes exactly where that gorilla tells it to go and if we start with the presupposition of god and the truth of his word of course it has to affect everything that we deal with yeah as, as as far as reading scripture too you know i use the analogy of the fedex symbol i can't tell you how many times i read romans 1 that says everyone knows that god exists and went out and tried to prove that god exists to them but now when i read scripture i cannot read scripture without seeing the apologetic same with the fedex symbol for people who aren't familiar with it have a look at the fedex symbol between the e and the x there's an arrow now if you never saw that arrow before you know how many times have you seen that symbol and you've never seen the arrow now, once you look at that FedEx symbol and you've seen that arrow, you can never look at that FedEx symbol without seeing it, and I use that as an analogy with Scripture, that this apologetic is throughout Scripture, and now I cannot read Scripture without seeing it, and like, you know, I agree with you, Colin, it's changed the way that I read the Bible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I used to, I used to like, go to Genesis, and I'm like, okay, yeah, Genesis creation account, and now I look at it, and it says, in the beginning, God. It starts with the presupposition that God exists. You can't even make sense of the first sentence of Scripture if you don't start with that view.
3: That's the, uh, like Van Van Tiln, Defense of the Faith, talking about that, says that the atheist worships the void. Yeah. But whereas the Christian worships the self-authenticating God.
4: Amen. Like Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, like I talk about in the film. I read those verses and never understand them before. Scripture calls the unbeliever a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I say, too bad God never addressed in Scripture how we're supposed to deal with the fool. I say, wait a minute. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. What is the fool's folly? That there is no God. And what do we do? We put God on the shelf. We say, well, let's look at these evidence to try and conclude God. We're doing exactly what Scripture tells us not to do. Do not do not answer the fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him. But what's the very next verse? Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Now, Atheists or unbelievers, they never bring up that contradiction or alleged contradiction. I don't know why, but I never understood it before. I actually Googled that verse to see how people answered, and it's ludicrous. You know, it says, don't get angry like the unbeliever, but sometimes you need to get angry. But answer a fool according to his folly. And do I deny God at that point? No. I say, okay, you say there's no God. How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of this? Truth, knowledge, love, morality, any of those things. Answer him according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes. And that's what I'll do. And those verses are right beside each other. And of course, it's not an apologetic uh, book. However, those verses apply so well to the apologetic, and I never understood them before I understood the apologetic.
2: In regards to evidence, um, we asked online what uh, people's questions are about presuppositional apologetics on Facebook. and Eddie Mercado said, "Do presup folks ever use evidence in apologetics, or do they only attack the faulty assumptions in the opposing argument?
4: Well, the, the thing is, I think what we have to differentiate, too, be, is between um, between sharing your faith and defending your faith. When I share my faith, I will give all the evidence that's available. I might say, I went for a walk last night, I look up at the stars, and oh, God declared his glory by the magnificence of the heavens. You know, I'm sharing my faith. I use all the evidence I want, the complexity of the eye, go for it. But when they say, you're nuts for what you believe, now I'm not sharing my faith any, anymore. And I'm very reluctant to use evidences, but there is a place for evidence. Um, Greg Bonson goes through a number of points in one of his talks, and um, one of them, he says, is to clear mental debris. So let's say there's somebody who comes up to you and says, well, oh, there's just this one thing that's really been— bu- I really want to become a Christian, but just this one thing has been bugging me. Now, I might say to them, well, the fact that it bugs you exposes that you know that God exists, but let's have a look at it. Go through it with them. One of the uh, reasons is um, to embarrass the unbeliever with their ridiculous conjectures against what you believe and but i think there's some danger in that because let's say you know you do that let's say um somebody's talking about um the age of the earth and they say oh carbon 14 dating shows that the earth is billions of years old and you know a little bit about carbon dating and you say well actually sir carbon only has a half-life of so many thousands of years it can only measure things of thousands of years so, so you're quite wrong there but that's not your problem and you get back to the gospel However, that person might say, well, actually, you know, I wasn't talking about carbon. I was talking about radiometric dating. There's different half-lives. Now you're in an evidential argument. So I think there's a place for that. You have to really know your stuff. But I say just use that as an aside to show the absurdity of their position and to get right back to your position. So, you know, that's two things right there. Bonsa would even say that evidence is useful in those in whom the Holy Spirit is already at work to display the glory of God. And I said something in the film that I, I think I probably want to take back. It's And I said it's it's helpful to bolster the faith of believers. But then it was actually David, uh, the Chalk Knox, who exposed that to me. He said, what is a weak faith? What is a faith that needs bolstering? You know, it didn't really make sense to me. So I say, well, evidence is good to show the glory of God. So if you want to do that in an apologetic counter, encounter with the unbeliever, show them the glory of God with whom... You know, you sense that the Holy Spirit is ready at work in their lives. That's a great place for evidence. But I say, just do not use it in a way that assumes that this unbeliever needs to conclude God with evidence. And, you know, I think that that will become apparent. Use it in a way that does not put God on trial. Now, the thing is, I tell people I'm a factory worker. And I've gone to some talks where people have said, I've heard that you've said that, you know, evidential apologetics is sinful. And, you know, I don't really say that, you know, although I think that some forms of it uh, would be. But this is what I say to the person. I say, look, I'm a factory worker. My goal is to reach the lost. If you can show me a way to use evidences while you're doing that, please show me. If you could show me somebody who's doing it, using evidences to reach the lost in a way that glorifies God and does not put him on trial, show me. But the problem is when I've said that, not one person has gotten back to me. So
2: start with precept. Use evidence in the midst of the precept. But precept is the foundation.
4: Sure. The thing is, you can use evidence all you want, if you can do it in a way that does not put God on trial. You know, somebody might say to me, look, uh, what, what about the age of the earth? I might go through my explanation of it. And 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 here's the thing, I don't necessarily go to a college campus and start talking presuppositionally with them. You know, I might go and I say, look, according to the Bible, you all know that God exists. Now, the fact that you're sitting here denying God, it's another reason. It's spiritual. You have an objection to God, you have an argument with God, that objection might be the problem of evil. Here, let me tell you how we resolve that biblically. And then I'm not doing I'm 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 preaching the scriptures to them. And now they might say, well, you're nuts for this. Well, now I might get into more of an apologetic argument, more of a presuppositional argument. But our presupposition is that scripture is true. So I'm not so much of a preacher as I am a teacher. I teach the gospel to them. I teach Christianity to people. And I think that's what, as presuppositions, we should be doing. Yeah.
1: I found I found that myself um when I get when I get questioned by unbelievers that I see on a regular basis about one or another evidential issue prior to understanding the Bible on the issue I would have really focused on their objection um from an evidential standpoint and now I'll get somebody who'll say something like oh well the Bible was, is just full of contradictions and I'll I'll just say well it really isn't like that's just right. not true. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, the, and that's as far as I ever get with the evidence is I just say, well, no, that's just not the case. Like what you're saying, you're claiming these, that's just not true. You just don't understand the issue. And I hardly ever experience them, uh, willing to go very far on that.
4: Um. Yeah, a lot of times they bring that ob- objection up because it's what they've always heard.
1: Exactly. And so rather than focusing on it because they don't even understand the issue, rather than, you know, going down a rabbit trail, it's just easier to say, "Well, that's not what it that's that's not actually true. Here's the gospel." Like we we don't have to right. beat around the bush.
4: But what I will say to them is I'll say, "Look, we're going to approach that very issue differently. As a Christian, I don't think there are any contradictions. There might be things I don't understand." Right. But as a non-Christian, you're going to look for contradictions. And I say, you know what? I'm in a really good mood today. I want you to tell me this alleged contradiction, and I'll maybe even look it up. If I don't know how to resolve it, I'll try to resolve it for you. But first, like you said, Colin, is first I want you to tell me why contradictions are not allowed. Right, right. And then, you know, you expose the fact that you can only have a problem with contradictions if you have an absolute standard, and they don't. So, you know, and even after I expose it, I might even take them to that alleged contradiction if I happen to know how we resolve it. But then you've already exposed the fact that they can't make sense of, you know, contradictions without God. So, this is, you know, back to the bomb analogy. If you let that bomb off, you set that bomb off, and you drive down the highway, you know, 60 miles to get that chunk of morality that's wedged into a tree. Then you could say, well, you know why morality is way over here? Wow. Because of this. Do you know why this is way over here? Because of this. Because you've already set the bomb off. The worldview is already toast. Now you can get into evidences. Now you can get into this, this kind of stuff because they understand that you're getting into these things with the basis of your worldview and not theirs because theirs is already in shambles. Yeah, King
0: Jesus. Wow. I can't imagine how folks feel. They don't know that this hope's real. They don't know about Postmill. His enemies are just roadkill. And that's so real. Yeah, that's so real. Christ Jesus is dominating like Carmelo at Oak Hill. And this ain't high school. So Cy,
1: tell us about that Postmill. Don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) So you hang out with you you mean post millennialism? Yeah, you hang out with post millennials all the time. So what's what's the deal?
4: You want to know if I'm post millennial? Let me back Sai up
3: okay, here because okay. I hang out with Pado Baptists all the time. Uh uh-huh. oh. Oh, here we go. But that don't
1: make me a Pado Baptist. <laughs> you know <what> I'm
3: saying? <laughs> it's
1: true. No, I. No, I. One of my favorite things that, that you say, Sai is that um, uh, you wish that you hope post millennialism is true.
4: Right. I want that. Yeah. I do not understand the opposition to post millennialism. I want that view to be true. And I think if pushed to the wall, if you question me on what do I believe about this, what do I believe about this, what do, you would probably conclude that I'm post-millennial. However, I've never said it publicly. I've never said that I'm post-millennial because I don't want to embarrass the position. Mm. I don't want people to say, well, it's so you're post-millennial. What do you think about this verse? Because I've never studied it. That's why I don't say that I am. I think if pushed to the wall, I would say that I'm a hopeful all-millennial. But I think it was you on Facebook that uh, just what? What did you call that? That's oh, just, uh, I said uh,
1: an optimistic ah is a post mill in denial. <laughs>
4: yeah, that's right. And you know what? I saw that and I th- I thought you're probably right.
1: Yeah. And, and, I you know, I resonate with your humility, though. Like, I, I think that there's really a lot of room to say, you know, like, I haven't studied that issue, and I really don't know where I stand, because I get questions about things that are way more complex, like, way over my head all the time, and I, I've just learned that it's way better to just say, you know, I don't really know, rather than jump on a boat and say, you know, I definitely hold to this view that yeah. I don't understand.
4: But, but one thing I, I tell people is that everything I do is consistent with the post-millennial position, mm. because if I did not have hope for the future then it would, you know, I'm not saying that that makes the position true, but what I do is consistent with the position. And like I was telling you before we started recording, you know, I do a lot of street evangelism with my friends who aren't post-millennial. They all pray like post-millennials, mm. you know, they all pray for revival of that city, they're a revival of that campus with the thing in the back of their mind. If they're not post-millennial, they must be thinking in the back of their mind, if they're consistent, that, okay, this eventually must fail, and when I pray that, I don't pray that this eventually must fail. I pray that, you know, God will answer this prayer. Whether he does or not is totally up to him. But I pray like a post-millennial.
3: I think it might be uh, also maybe beneficial to speak about maybe the importance of labels. Like there, there is definitely a place um, to, to be open and say, yeah, like, I mean, obviously I'm on this podcast. It's no secret to anyone that I'm post-millennial. Um, it's also no secret to anyone that we are theonomic, um, Calvinist, but there's all, but, but, okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> s- sorry, 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 we're, we're just letting it out of the bag, but like, we'll take the theonomy label, especially with what's going on, and we're not going to discuss theonomy, you know, like another podcast says every, every time, but we, we, um, we when it comes to theonomy. I've noticed, like, for example, Van Til had had some amazing men come out of his class, right? And we know Bonson, we know Frame. But you know who else came out of his class, Van, uh, who came out of Van Til? Um, and, and now, uh, he, again, Van Til was not the, would not say he was theonomist based on like a reconstructionist understanding, even though I'm looking at a chapter here in his defense of the Faith talking about what it means to have Christian behavior, and he uses the word reconstruction quite a bit. But we have um, this idea, though, that, that to come out of Van Til, we have some that came out of Van Til, like Bonsu, who's very open about the labels, very open about the distinctions. And you know what? There's no one I think that was, has ever refuted him. But you have another student of Van Til that came out, very post-millennial ideas, very theonomic in his behavior, but I never see him use a single term. I never see him say theonomy, and he was very, very influential. Some would say in terms of the mass church, more, more influential than Bonson, and that's Francis Schaeffer. Now, I'm not saying Francis Schaeffer was completely right. I'm not saying, I'm not siding with him or anything, but I will say this. Francis Schaeffer believed that God's gospel would conquer. He believed that God's law was a standard, but you never saw him trying to defend the position of theonomy, but you did see him uh, propagating this worldview, of God's law being the standard, of God's gospel being the hope of humanity, engaging culture, creation mandate, all, all that, all that stuff. So I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong, but there is a time and a place where we have to really be, uh, I think, conscious about our surroundings and where we're at, as to whether I should come out and say, "Hey, I'm a theonomist, reconstructionist, post mill," woohoo, mm-hmm. or if I should just represent the gospel to my understanding and and really see God move and work. You know, for. In my church and in my community, we're very, we're out on the streets a lot. We engage with um, that community a lot. It wouldn't do for me to just come out and say, hey guys, I'm gonna do a, a talk right now on theonomy. But it's amazing what we've seen when the elders and I have gotten together and have done sermon series on what is God's law? What is the story of God's law? What does God want? How do we, how do we come to conclusions about right and wrong? Um, and, and all these things, but so, Sai, I, I think that um, your your position, I think that that's admirable, and I think that it's uh, especially in your position and your ministry, I think that it's 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 great, you know, and I support it.
4: Well, I'm I'm not afraid to use terms, especially with the millennial views. It's just that you know I don't really know what I am, so I stick with what I have been historically. I think that if I was sitting across from Greg Bons or so you know, in five minutes, I might. You know, profess that. I mean, I have dear brothers that are post millennial, like um Marcus and and uh, and um Jeff Durbin and and whoa, the whoa, whoa. Marcus
3: and, and Jeff are post millennial.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and, and the chocolate no. knocks. And like I say, it's sh- it's just that I have only so much uh, capacity in my mind to understand things, and um it's it's not an area that is particularly interesting. And I don't I don't deny that people should study these things. It's just not something that I've studied. But I think that like I say terms are important the problem nowadays is that especially with the term theonomy you know people don't understand what it is yeah. and and they label you they they delete you they block you whatever without even understanding what it is and I say on facebook every once in a while all christians are theonomists just not all of them know it yet you know the same thing with calvinism but the thing is will i use the term Well, I did because I wanted to purge my friends list i actually took those posts down because people started arguing and that wasn't it was really kind of a, a fun thing but but here's the thing, I think terms are important because you have people not calling themselves Christians now. Yeah. Because of the, the, the sloppiness of Christians, you know, throughout the world. I have so a they good call themselves who's doing that, yeah. So they call themselves Christ followers. And I say that's ridiculous. We're Christians. Just because people do it wrong. So I think, you know, we can call ourselves theonomists. but if somebody asks if you're a theonomist, you might want to say, Well, what do you understand about that? Yeah. You know yeah. well, the so thing
5: well, about Christian though is that's a biblical term whereas Theonomist right. isn't so right, i've right. I've started calling myself theonomic or just someone who I love God's law, and so and that's what david talks talks about a lot in the Psalms about how he loves God God's law and wants to see it um adhered to and loved and upheld and things like that, so I think I think. I'm I'm starting to go away from Theana Mist and like this is like this is how I define myself as opposed to this is the type of things that I believe and I love God's law and just kind mm-hmm. of kind of leaving it that way and letting people um make their inferences from that as opposed to being associated with maybe other people that I might not
4: agree with all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair too because I think you know the type of infighting between the camps it's really disgraceful. You know, people, uh, you know, being discernment bloggers, discernment podcasters, who have, first of all, no business doing it, but it's only, you know, seeking to sow division. And and the older I get, you know, I'm 51 now, and it's just, I have no time for that. I say, if you want to talk about that, that's fine. But people say, you know, say so you're a theonomist. How come I don't see you in all these arguments where things blow up? I say, you know, because that's not my focus you know that's not my fault. For- I I will explain my position, and if you disagree with it, well, that's too bad. I'll pray for you. You know this is what I believe, and um, I'm just trying to stay out of you know that kind of fray. You know,
5: if we could only all stay out of that type of fray, but my f- my fingers go faster than my brain.
4: Well, I- I- again, the thing is, I think you know some people, it's their duty to be there, but we just like Amen. even like with apologetics, with gentleness and respect. Yeah. And I and I think when people, you know, the people who are truly seeking, you know, in in that those type of things, when they step step back and they see the attitude of the people debating that, that goes a long way in helping them to see the position. Too. Yeah, it does.
1: Yeah, the, I have a I have a couple. Um, uh, there's a group of of close friends that uh, are mixed Amil, uh, Postmil, post theonomist, non-theonomist, pedo baptist baptist, and we just constantly, constantly joke with each other and are making fun of each other and making memes of each other and <laughs> stuff like that. And there's something about the camaraderie that we have that allows us to go in and out of, you know, poking fun at each other and having serious conversation that um, because we know each other, um, we're never we're never rude to each other and we never, you know, question each other's salvation. And that's one of the things that when it comes to these, like, like when I hear William Lane Craig say something, like, I just shake my head and go, man, I can't, like, I just wish he would read the Bible and see why that's not true. But he's still a brother. And like, I would, I would still like, you know, go out to lunch with him and have conversations about what God's doing in his ministry and stuff like that. And so while, while we think that, you know, people, these people, we disagree with them on these issues. Disagreement on issues doesn't mean that we should divide from each other there's a the healthy division is the is the sort of organic disagreement where you know we disagree on these issues, maybe we can't go to the same church because we disagree on some really foundational issues, but we can still be friends. And we can still talk about right. it versus you know you're a heretic and I can 't be your friend anymore right
4: yeah, I was watching a William Lane Craig debate, actually the one that he did with Christopher Hitchens. Mm. And, of course, I disagree with his apologetic, but some of the stuff he said, I thought, well, this guy's a brother. right? You know, just, just really sound, you know, beautiful things. But then you look at some of his other beliefs and you think, you know, you start to wonder. So I'm not really sure, but thankfully that's not our position to judge. Right. But, I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but I spoke at Reformation Montana in um, 2014, yeah. like last year. I mean, I had met Jordan Hall before the debate. He is a sweet guy. I love Jordan Hall. Now, I know that some of you have uh, had interactions with him, and I I know people at the debate that, you know, they start throwing around different labels and stuff like that. I know that, you know, people want to stick to their position and maybe things that were said that are misconstrued or or whatever, or maybe even things that were blatant. I still love him. You know, I'll still speak at his conference. And I wish that people knew him like I did. And like I say, maybe there are issues that have transpired between other people, but I just try to stay out of this. He's a brother of mine. I, I love him, and I'd be happy to sit down any time with him and uh, have a beer, even though I don't drink. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we we did an episode a little bit ago on the debate, and we really wanted to stress that we we have a lot of respect for yeah definitely for Pastor Hall. And like I, one thing that this controversy did was it introduced me to Pulpit and Pen, and I've been listening ever since. Um, <laughs> I think that he has, I, and I I know that I don't have any like business being, like in a room with giants and that's kind of how I see it like with with, uh, with Dr. McDermott and, and Hall and yes I have my opinions and, and whatever but the point is is that I'm doing my thing and I often think about the scriptures where Peter is like well Christ, Lord what about John and he's like no you worry about you like what, what business is it of you that I have John doing this and you doing this so we all have our calling and, and what we're supposed to do
0: so. Psalm 2 and 12, kiss the son of Paris. If you're waiting for him to come and reign, and you're in error. On the throne of David, the Savior's already there. This is something that some in the church are not aware of.
1: So, I, I, I think it would be great if you could just give us um, how, how people can connect with you and your ministry, and, and maybe some recommendations of other literature that you've benefited greatly from on the supo- subject of presuppositionalism.
4: Well my website is proof that god exists with an s dot and they can contact me through there. Um, for the last couple of months, I've been working on migrating my site over to WordPress. It'll be the same address. But for those of you who listen to this, if you could pray for me, because I'm not a, a, weg, a web geek, but I've been trying to learn all this language and stuff to do it myself so that I don't have to depend on other people to update it. But you can contact me there. My email is contact proof that god exists If you keep the email short, I try and get back to people. I really slipped with that uh, recently because I've been getting quite a few emails and I ask people's as forgiveness. But, uh, yeah, they can do that. They can go to my Proof That God Exist uh, uh, YouTube channel. i got a bunch of videos there. I'm really looking forward to getting the new website up because uh, I have a lot more videos up there, and they're categorized you know, to witnessing or to promo for other stuff that I've done. And people can go to debatingdillahunty.com to get that film, or um, I think it's yeah, answerthefool.com. They can get the Answer the Fool film as well.
3: Both are amazing films, by the way. Please, please, listeners, if you haven't seen these or gotten a hold of these films, debating Dilla Dil- Huntie or answer the, how to answer the fool, please get them. They're amazing. Definitely.
1: And Sai, who are your favorite? Who are the your favorite people that introduced you to Precept?
4: Well, I um, like I was quite down in my apologetic uh, ministry because, like I say, all these arguments were being thrown back at me. But I still love listening to debates. So, of course, I think a lot of people got to start with the Bonson-Stein debate. So Greg Bonson, I mean, he died uh, 20 years ago now at the age of 47. But if you can find anything by Greg Bonson, I don't tell a lot of people the history, but I listened to that debate. And, of course, you know, like you, I immediately Googled presuppositional apologetics. And I found a podcast. that was out on the West Coast. It was called The Narrow Mind by a good friend of mine now, Gene um, Cook, Jr. And I became a narrow mind addict. And I listened to that. I was on the show, I think, uh, four or five times and I still am friends with him on Facebook and I think the archive isn't up anymore, but you know, that's where I cut my teeth on it. And then I met, of course, my friend Dustin Seegers. Then we, we still communicate. We were talking even today on Skype and, you know, we, we engage each other. We go over some of these arguments and we try and really bring it down from the uh, PhD level down to the level of the average man on the street. And, uh, so that's what we've been doing. But if you go to my website as well, you can go to the recommended books page, and I've got a bunch of books there that awesome. I would recommend that people uh, pick up. But I, most of my learning I did through Covenant Media Foundation by Greg Bonson's uh, audio lectures. Hey, uh, but before we go, I should throw in a plug for Greg Strawbridge's uh, Word MP3, because he's got a bunch of stuff. And I met him at the baptism debate uh, down in Florida, and he's a super guy as well.
1: Very cool. He does. He has some precept stuff
3: you saying?
4: Absolutely, he's got a lot of bonds and stuff. I think oh. it's wordmp3.com. Very
3: cool. I did not know that. I got to check it out. Excellent. Well, I just wanted, uh, Colin, you uh, you have a reputation for being a pre supper, bro. And if you can maybe tell the listeners uh, just a couple references that you would recommend, I think that'd be really helpful as well.
1: Honestly, I would say to go to Sai's website because that's, that's where I got started. I got the first thing that I, I saw, I don't even know where I ran into it, but I saw how to answer the full floating around on Facebook, just things that people were posting. And and I was like, oh, this looks like cool. This looks cool. So I, you know, pre-ordered it, and then it came in the mail, and I watched it. And after that, I went to size's website and I watched two, watched all his videos, listened to all of his audio lectures, and then I I went and I picked up Van Til's Defense of the Faith, and um, I you know got some Bonson. I, I don't remember which one of his uh, apologetics books I actually read because I borrowed it from a friend and gave it back. But um, yeah, I would go the sa- same thing that Sai was saying. So
5: you know i i was going to say it's funny that i got turned on to presuppositional apologetics by somebody who's not presuppositional who is ray comfort wow i i think i think his ministry has single-handedly made more presuppositional slash uh reformational slash theonomic people than any other ministry because a lot of people got turned on to People like Cy and, and American Vision and, and other people, people like that, through um, knowing people through Ray Comfort's ministry. I
4: find that ironic. Well, I'm friends with a lot of people in that ministry, and Mark Spence, for instance, the Ray Comfort's manager, he has died in the world presuppositional. So um, I think there's definitely been some influence by the grace of God in that ministry.
3: That's very cool. Mark Spence. Yeah, Mark Spence has some actually. I was just watching some videos of his this week. He has some great videos where he's just. And, in a form answering student questions on this on a stage and i just think that they're really valuable uh videos for everyone yeah
1: and also Apologia radio i mean we can't plug them enough because they they resonate with us on so many different issues but um definitely on the apologetic stuff as well um that if if you're looking for specifically how to engage meaningfully with you know mormons and stuff like that um as far as like getting into the actually understanding where they're coming from and how they understand scripture, Jeff is really good with stuff like that. So definitely check him out.
4: And Mark Marcus would really get on my case if I didn't plug them. But check out Apology Radio, Apology Studios. There's big stuff coming from them. I mean, if you look on Facebook, they're building their studio. And Yeah, so uh, I'm, excited about I'm looking about forward to some really, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it.
2: Well, I think it'd be cool if you got two minutes, I Can you just tell us a little bit about you? Like what do you do for a living? What uh, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies?
4: Well, on I think it's uh, May eighteenth. Uh, eight, No, it'll be seven years ago this May that I quit my job. I, I was in a, a high paying job. I'm a stationary engineer. I was working for an automotive manufacturer, and um, I went to an evangelism conference from the church that uh, I was attending at the time, and I disagreed with ninety five percent of what the guy said. And then I think it was the next day or so that I saw that Ben Stein movie Expelled. And at the end of the movie, he says, if we don't do something about this, who will? Now, I'm not a pr- proponent of intelligent design, but he says his famous line from Ferris Bueller's Day Off at the end. Anyone? Anyone? So I went in and I handed my resignation and then, then I quit my job. And so in May, it'll be eight years and, uh, you know, it was, a, I guess, a leap of faith. I'm not married, so I don't have a lot of expenses. I don't get a lot, but I don't have a lot of expenses. So that's what I, And before I quit my job, I was an avid scuba diver. I'm a dive master and uh, I would go travel the world and scuba dive. And I think, I don't think I've been in the water since I quit my job, which is, uh, you know, quite disappointing. But if you have any scuba divers who are listening who want to invite me over to the Bahamas or something, <laughs> <laughs> there go. Uh. so yeah, I, my hobbies have really kind of gone by the wayside since I started doing this full time. Like people think, well, you know, what do you do for a living? Well, really, I don't make a living doing this. I don't have a lot of expense. I don't really plan for the future. And, um, you know, I I'm just doing this for as long as I can and by the grace of God I've been able to keep on doing it but like I say my hobbies vacation I just don't even know what those words mean anymore.
3: Wow. Well, Cy, if you ever come to Florida, bro, um, we'll, we'll we'll hit up the keys and we'll we'll do some diving. That's a deal. That's
2: a deal. If you are ever in <laughs> Minnesota, there's not a lot of reason to come here. <laughs> but if you are, I'll take you up for ice well, fishing, a beer, bro. Ice fishing. Yeah.
4: <laughs> 10,000 likes. Hey, I I've been in water that's been below freezing. It was in a river. So that's why I didn't freeze, but, um, yeah, that was, that was an experience. That's,
1: that's pretty cool. I did not know that you did, did diving. That's pretty exciting.
2: Okay. So if people want to, uh, want to support you knowing that you don't have, uh, you know, a regular day job, this is, this is what you do for a living. Um, do you have a nonprofit people can support to to send you money? What do they need to do? We got people, I know are going to hear this and say, needs to keep doing what he's doing what, how can we support you what
4: uh, where's well I'm go? I'm not nonprofit and I vowed that I would never be nonprofit because I don't want the government to be able to step in and say well si you can't say this anymore and and apparently um, apparently if you'd say something that contravenes what the government you know says you should say that they can ask for back taxes from when you start the ministry so I'm not nonprofit but if people go to my uh, website proofthego org they can go to the donate page like I said I'm moving all of that over to WordPress soon. And um, PayPal hates Christians, so I don't have a PayPal button there. But I do have a PayPal address where people can um, donate to, or just my own uh, physical address, and people can send a check if they so desire. Uh, very much appreciated. But I remember when I started this ministry, I had a friend. He was not a believer, and he was quite drunk at the time. He said, "Any god I believe in isn't going to be short of cash." So um, you know, I, th- I took that to heart, and I thought, "I don't want to be the guy hmm. out there, you know, begging for money." And and if you know, I'm not saying that people should not do that. But I have found that if you don't ask for money, you normally don't get it. But it's been almost eight years now, and God has allowed me to remain in this ministry, and uh, I hope that He keeps uh, allowing me to do so.
2: So, would would you say that a like a you you rely on a lot of like these movies that you put out for for support? Should we? recommend people go out and buy the videos and send them to friends i mean i want people to know practically how can they how can they help yeah
4: absolutely you. um that that's one thing like uh, ken Hovind i disagree with much of his uh, theology but one thing he said if you don't have product you'll starve yeah so uh yeah sure pick up the films and when i get once i get the website up then i'm gonna have a whole bunch of t-shirts in there i know it's a nickel and dying but uh, nickel and dying every little bit uh helps and uh, you know, that's what I want to do. I want people to benefit from any support that they might give me, and hopefully, they have by just even listing the audios and the videos that I provide for free on the website. So,
2: awesome. Well, anyway, we can help you. We definitely want to support you as much as we can. So, um, I
1: I wouldn't I think... be where I am theologically if it weren't for you, Cy, si, and you know that. So, yeah,
4: yeah that, that, that me as well, sir. Sometimes that scares me though when Colin says. It. <laughs> 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 uh,
2: and if anybody out there knows anybody any, who does scuba diving, we we gotta send us an email. We gotta figure something out. We gotta get Cy in the water again. So let's do that. Cool.
1: Well, uh, thanks. Thank you guys for listening to Dat Postmill. You can get us at datpostmill.com. Remember one L. Find us on on Facebook. Um, follow us on Twitter at Dat Postmill. And keep hashtagging that post mail. We'll see you next week. That post mail.
0: And the meat, Jesus said that the earth they shall inherit. Some think it's getting worse, for how? Jesus removed the curse. He has dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Now he's reigning from heaven. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Psalm 72 11. This a anthem. This song is not an apologetic. This a song that lets you know Christ is king because I read it. If you want a debate, name a time and place and we'll get it. The progression of the kingdom of God is where my head is. A post-millennial age is where we're headed. Christ is conquering the nations. Yeah, I said it.
3: Jesus the Messiah brought the expected kingdom on time and as planned. He is seated and reigning now. His kingdom will grow in history through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The world will experience the transformational blessings that peace with God brings. Jesus will return For the resurrection of the just and the unjust after, after
0: all his enemies are put under his feet in victory. The last enemy is death.